Hi everyone, you're listening to the May 2023 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. Yes, you heard that right, I said May, and don't worry, you haven't missed anything. I'm afraid events rather conspired against me towards the end of March, so the April episode didn't happen. If you've spent the last month excitedly refreshing your podcast app only to be constantly disappointed by the lack of fresh content, I can only apologise. I won't bore you with the details, but I will say that if I ever see a scheme return again, it'll be far too soon. Later on, I'll be joined by Rebecca Peake to talk about member options and support, but before that, strap in for a roller coaster ride through the pensions news from the last <clears throat> two months. I'll start with the biggest story from March, which is the spring budget, or more specifically the changes to pensions tax. In a bid to encourage older workers to delay retirement, the Chancellor has increased the annual allowance from £40,000 to £60,000. And in a more surprising move, he's also announced that the lifetime allowance will be scrapped altogether. Whether these changes will achieve the government's stated objective remains to be seen. The Labour Party pretty quickly indicated that they'll reinstate the lifetime allowance if they win the next election. So we could actually see a rush of members taking early retirement over the next year just to make the most of what may only be a short-term opportunity. As usual with this kind of thing, there are a few details to watch out for. And rather than going through those here, what I will do is drop a link into the show notes with a replay of a webinar that we ran on this topic at the beginning of April. A private member's bill on auto-enrolment that was first introduced to Parliament last July has now been reintroduced. The snappily titled Pensions, Open Brackets, Extension of Automatic Enrolment, Close Brackets, Open Brackets, Number 2, Close Brackets Bill, seeks to extend the current regime by reducing the age at which workers are auto-enrolled from 22 to 18 and removing the lower qualifying earnings threshold. Now, this won't affect those earning below the current earnings trigger of £10,000, but for everyone else, it will mean contributions are payable from the first pound of earnings. Most private members' bills don't become law, and that looked like it was the case when this was first introduced last year. However, this bill now has government support, so it's far more likely to get through Parliament and become law. It's already cleared the Commons, and it's now working its way through the House of Lords. We won't be seeing any immediate changes here, but the government's plan is to launch a consultation on the implementation approach and timetable in the autumn. The DWPs published the government's second review of the state pension age. Legislation currently provides for an increase in the SPA from 66 to 67 between 2026 and 2028, with a further increase from 67 to 68 between 2044 and 2046. In the first review, the government had proposed bringing the later increase forward by seven years, which would have meant SPA reaching age 68 in 2039. However, they've decided to hold off from making any changes just yet. Instead, a further review is planned within two years of the next Parliament to reconsider the rise to age 68. This allows more time to gather evidence on the long-term impact of recent challenges, including COVID-19 and global inflationary pressures, which have introduced a fair amount of uncertainty around life expectancy, labour markets and public finances. The government's also recommitted to the principle of providing 10 years notice of any changes to the SPA and notes that all options for the rise in SPA from 67 to 68 that meet the 10 year notice period will be in scope at the next review. The pensions regulators released some updated guidance on the use of leveraged LDI. 
This guidance looks to address where LDI fits with pension scheme strategies, and it covers all forms of LDI structures, as well as LDI mandates that incorporate other instruments like credit or equity. The key point here is that, following a recommendation from the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee, TPRs now specified a minimum level of collateral resilience for LDI funds. TPR says trustees should have a minimum market stress buffer of 250 basis points, as well as an additional operational buffer for day-to-day -day market movements. Trustees should also plan for how this buffer would be maintained, put in place processes for providing additional cash when required, and document all of this in a collateral management policy or something similar. In practice, many schemes will already have taken a lot of the actions set out in this guidance in the aftermath of the infamous mini-budget. However, Aon's view is that this guidance provides a helpful framework for trustees that will help strengthen the governance of LDI mandates going forward. TPR has assessed and authorised the UK's first collective defined contribution pension scheme, the Royal Mail Collective Pension Plan. Just as a reminder, CDC is a new type of scheme that sits somewhere between traditional DB and DC schemes. You have fixed contributions being paid in each year, like a DC scheme. However, unlike a DC scheme, the assets are pulled together rather than being held in individual accounts, and members build up a target inflation-linked pension rather than a pot of money. The word target is important here. This isn't a DB scheme, and CDC pensions aren't guaranteed. They need to be reviewed each year and the increases applied could be higher or lower than expected depending on experience. Pensions Minister Laura Trott described the authorisation as a landmark moment and just the beginning. The Royal Mail scheme has long been the poster child for CDC, so it's no surprise to see them being authorised first, but I guess the big question is what comes next? The existing CDC regulations only cover single and connected employer schemes. But as I said in the last episode, the DWP are now looking to widen the scope to include multi-employer schemes and decumulation-only solutions, so this may be where CDC really finds its stride. TPR has published its 2023 Annual Funding Statement. This is aimed at DB schemes with valuation dates between the 22nd of September 2022 and the 21st of September 2023 as well as schemes undergoing significant changes that require a review of their funding and risk strategies. The statement is significantly revised from previous years, with more of a focus now on rethinking strategies for funding, investment and covenant. TPR says around a quarter of schemes may now have enough assets to buy out their liabilities with an insurance company. These schemes should consider whether proceeding with a buyout is the best way to lock in funding gains, or if running the scheme on may be a better option for members. The next group is schemes where the funding level is above TPs but below buyout. TPR says these schemes should consider whether their long-term objective is still appropriate and look to accelerate their journey plans if they now find themselves ahead of plan. For schemes who still have a technical provisions deficit, TPR's message is perhaps more familiar. The priority here is to recover this deficit as soon as the employer can reasonably afford, with any recent funding gains used to de-risk the investment strategy rather than reducing employer contributions. TPR notes that the recent rise in interest rates will have led to a reduction in DB scheme liabilities, and this could make employer covenants look proportionately stronger than they did before. However, they've warned schemes to avoid complacency when looking at this. The statement also confirms that the new Code of Practice for DB funding, which was due to come into force from October 2023, has been delayed. TPR now expect the new regulations and Code of Practice to come into force at the same time in April 2024. 
The existing code and guidance will remain in place until then, so it appears that any valuations with an effective date on or before the 31st of March 2024 now won't be subject to the requirements of the new code. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. It's been a couple of years since we last talked about member options on the podcast. We've seen quite a lot of changes in that period, so we thought it was worth giving this topic another look. And to help with this, I'm joined by Rebecca Peake from Aeon's member options specialist team. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Did you want to take a few moments just to introduce yourself? Hi, Ricky. Thank you. It's um, great to be chatting to you today. Um, so as you say, I'm, I'm Rebecca, an actuary and senior consultant at Aon. And my role split between two parts. Um, I have my typical day job of um, working with actuarial, um, uh, on my actuarial role advising DB trustee clients. But I also spend a large amount of time um, working um, on projects in the member options team and supporting clients in that area. And for me, although it's called the member options team, I think I always think of it as a bit more about member options and support, um, although that's probably a bit of a mouthful for a team name. And it's that supporting members side that really interests me and is is what I'm passionate about. Um, And as you say, a lot of things have changed recently. And it's actually been great to see a continued trend over recent years that trustees and companies are not only doing lots in this area, but actively looking to do more in this area to further support members and very much moving away from the um, taking a minimal compliance route. So how are you picking up on this trend? Is it mainly just anecdotal evidence? Um, Well, certainly uh, what I found is anecdotally, yes, um, I can draw that conclusion from speaking to trustees or seeing what's on agenda topics. Um, but actually, it's more than that. Um, we can support this trend um, with, uh, we've been monitoring it for a few years now, where we run an annual member options survey. Um, and that survey looks at over 300 pension scheme. And that's given us real evidence of um, of pension schemes moving away from that minimal compliance um, and adding extra support to the point that now, more than ever, it's very much the norm to have some level of support for members and not the exception. And what does that additional support actually look like in practice? So there's very much a spectrum of options for providing support, um, but I kind of see it um, as three key ways of doing it. So some might take that first step of moving away from um, the standard compliance route or perhaps mentioning some options to actually actually providing some personalised figures for members, so their transfer value figures. And then you can take it a step further by um, potentially providing access to online modellers, looking at those personalised figures and seeing what members can do with them or how they can flex them, and also providing IFA support. And schemes are either doing... Uh, tend to do one or the other of those ones or provide them together. Um, And what we've seen over the past few years is that the the percentage of schemes not providing one of these options has been steadily decreasing. Um, And actually in that later bucket of providing online modelers or IFA support, um, we've seen a strong rise in um, schemes providing one of those. 
Um, and as part of this year's survey, we also asked what they're planning on doing next year. And that actually pushes it to it being over half of schemes offering some level of support. And I expect that to continue growing over time, which is certainly what we've seen over the last few years. So as I say, it's very much the, the norm now rather than the exception. Yeah, so we know this is a trend that's been developing over the last few years. Do you have an idea of why that's happening? Um, I, I think historically and, and perhaps still now there's a bit of a mis misconception that a lot of these um, decisions in this area are driven off liability savings and that's perhaps what, what the reason why they were looked at in the past. But actually, um, in the last couple of years, I've seen enough fully funded schemes carrying out projects in this area to simply know that that's not the sole reason for why um, these options and support are being added. Um, recent years, there's been some particular drivers that have incentivized schemes to do it at this time, um, thinking about GMP equalization, for instance, or approaching buyout. Um, but overall, the objective for many clients looking at these is often it's about the member journey and doing something for members um, because let's face it um, we know it and I think um, our schemes know it pensions are complicated um, and not only are they complicated but they're one of the biggest decisions uh, a person will make in their lives um, and I think there's a real recognition and a real shift away from pension schemes being comfortable that doing nothing is in the members best interests and and that's a lot of the reason I think for schemes doing more and more in this area. So talking of complicated things I know you mentioned GMP equalization in there as one particular driver and just play, playing devil's advocate here I guess that raises questions about bandwidth and priorities as don't schemes already have enough on their plates at the moment? Yes, I mean, that, that's a good point. Obviously, things like GMP equalisation are a, a big project and taking a lot of time. But actually, if you think about what you're doing with GMP equalisation is um, whatever solution you are doing, so whether you're going down dual records or conversion, you're going to make, be making significant changes to what's going on behind the scenes with your administration processes, um, reviewing your calculations and potentially making significant changes to your communications as well. So um, this opens the door to actually make other changes at the same time in an efficient way. Um, and it might be that schemes have been considering doing more for member support anyway in recent years and actually haven't had the bandwidth to do it. And then suddenly GMP equalisation opens that door where they're making changes any, anyway. Let's do that this at the same time. Um, and, and take an example again, looking at the results from our survey, um, for GMP equalisation solutions for deferred members, which um, the what schemes are doing is starting to come out more and more, actually a quarter of schemes have already decided to add some form of additional options or support as part of their GMP equalisation solution, and a further 20% still considering the possibility of doing that. And of course, that's just on top of, and of course, that's on top of those already providing support and options. And the other driver you mentioned there was buyout. Does it really make sense to start making changes like this if you're getting close to buyout? Um, so there's there's a lot I could talk about here that probably would be a podcast in its own right. Um, but 
just because there's so many things you can consider in the run up, run up to buyout. But there's a couple of things um, that I want to draw out that I'm, I'm seeing as key drivers for why pension schemes might consider doing something in this area for that. The first is thinking, and again, it being quite member driven, is that the options for members are very likely to change after buyout. Um, so taking transfer values as an example, the um, transfer value basis is likely to be different um, when um, they've uh, after buyout. So it might be a good time for members who would be taking a transfer value in future to do it now rather than later, for instance. Um, so schemes are running exercises to make sure members are aware of that change because it's obviously quite complicated to understand that what goes on um, when a scheme goes to buy out and letting them know that that option is available now if they want to take it and if it's the right thing for them to do. Um, the other area that's that's more up and coming is that I think historically things like um, a pension increase exchange at retirement was just not considered an option after buyout, but we're seeing more of an appetite from insurers to have that discussion and consider it. So again, it's something that now might be the time if you're having those buyout conversations or approaching it, and it's actually something you actively want to offer to members to ha have that conversation with insurers, because it's no longer as obvious that it wouldn't be an option um, after buyout as it has been in the past. Um, and again, it's not just the odd scheme here and there doing something in, in this area. Our survey suggested that 30% of relevant schemes had run a member options exercise as part of their journey to buyout, and a further 20% are actively planning to do so. Now, you've mentioned transferring out a couple of times. Do we still think that's an attractive option to members? I think it's a it's a different landscape in the last year or so than it has been in the past with the high yield environment that actually transfer values are maybe not as attractive to some members as they have been as the past. There's not as much opportunity there, but it's still important to remember that for some members transfer value transfer values are still going to be the right option and we're still seeing a steady number of transfers coming through our schemes. Um, but that's going to be very member specific um, about what's best for them. And actually, again, coming back to how complicated pensions and, and how big these decisions are, that's something that is best for members to decide alongside an IFA. And certainly in nearly all instances, they'll need to take IFA advice um, and make sure that that's right for them. But what we're seeing is there's certainly a good proportion of members where it's still the right option for them. Um, and also lots of schemes, again, are recognising that um, members need help to make those decisions and are putting support in place to make that available. And are the majority of schemes actually providing paid for IFA advice? Again, coming back to the survey results, we're we're seeing 29% of schemes are providing some form of IFA support, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily fully paid for. Um, around Of those, around 75% are providing either fully paid for or a proportion of the costs covered. But actually, and, and this has increased over the last year, 25% are just setting up a preferred IFA um, and allowing the members to um, meet the costs themselves. Um, that might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but actually there's a lot of reasons for why this is still really beneficial to members. Um, the, the IFA market is 
quite rapidly evolving. Um, and also with the requirements to take IFA advice, there's um, a real um, lack of availability for the right uh, for pension specialists in this area. Um, and also, I, I know a lot of trustees feel concerned about this, that the um, reliability of some IFAs um, and whether they are legit or not, um, you know, wanting to make sure that your members have that best support available. So obviously going through the um, process to select a pre preferred IFA um, can take away some of those problems. Um, and the other aspect is that actually, although the member would have to meet the costs, they're likely to be significantly reduced compared to high street prices. Um, so if a member's looking to transfer anyway, and we'll be going to do that, that's saving them money. And also there's a lot of efficiencies from setting up the IFA. They know the scheme inside out. They learn all about the um, scheme benefits and understand them. So not only can they give the member a better understanding of their options, but also they can, um, do it much quicker than a, you know someone a high street IFA for instance that would have to go away and understand the scheme in detail. Right well thanks Rebecca that's been really helpful just to wrap things up did you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners? Thanks Ricky it's been it's been great to be here Um, obviously in, in my role I'm quite biased um, but I'm really I really am a strong advocate for member support um, and I would um, kind of encourage if you are taking a minimal compliance route, it should have been a conscious decision that you've made rather than something that is just not being considered at all. Um, so if you haven't had that or you're um, thinking or, or you think it's time to review your position to see if there's more than, that you can do, um, I definitely think it would be worth putting it on your agenda um, for this year. Okay, that's all for today. So thanks again to my guest, Rebecca Peak, and thanks to you for listening. I'm off to get a head start on the next episode now, just in case I run out of time or energy, or both, at the end of next month. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on Aeon's World Solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aeon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aeon.com.